0: Welcome to the ITad Talk podcast and part two in this series. All right, so a, another question. the term planned obsolescence gets thrown around a lot. Could you elaborate on what that means for anyone who hasn't who hasn't heard of it before?
1: Yeah, the, the term planned obsolescence is really this notion that the products that we seem to be buying these days, aren't lasting as long as they possibly could. And a lot of that has to do with the software that just eventually the software breaks down much quicker or is more mm. fragile, if you will, than the actual physical device. Uh, a really good case in point is refrigerators. Refrigerators are now you know, getting are becoming smart and so what's happening is you know they're putting in something but the life expectancy of refrigerators these days has gone down from mm, maybe two decades ago being about 20 years you could count on using a refrigerator to now somewhere around seven years so that's really the problem now oftentimes when people use the phrase planned obsolescence there's an implied kind of uh, maliciousness by the company I don't I don't I don't want to ascribe to that necess- that routine that concept at all but I will say that the evidence i.e 20 years to seven years is there and things are becoming obsolete obsolete quicker than they used to or maybe even more quickly than they should be And that's the important concept here to get is, what can we do as consumers and how we buy and and what we demand from our manufacturers? How can we we, um, get the products that we want and get a full value of the investment we have, but also keep companies like Apple innovating and innovating and innovating? So it's an interesting dynamic, and okay. it's one that I think if we are rigorous and allowing a competitive environment to exist, we will do better and better okay. um, with it.
0: So, um, yeah, okay, we got the third slide up. Um, what are some of the ongoing legislative, legislative and lobbying efforts, and what if the manufacturer says they'll repair it for us?
1: okay let's talk legislative first well now let me pick back up to we'll repair it manufacturer saying we'll repair it for you that's fine and and oftentimes people will choose that just like lots of people go back to your car dealer because that's where you want your car fixed but it's also some people lots of people choose to get their their car fixed by their independent mechanic I know my independent mechanic, Oscar. I trust Oscar. (laughs) I trust Oscar to tell me if I need something or if I don't. When I go to the dealer, I'm never quite sure. So it's fine that they want to, but my objection is requiring uh, that they're the only ones to do it. Now, legislation. In 2021, there were 41 bills in 27 states that were introduced on some element of right to repair, whether it was agricultural right to repair, whether it was a whole, any electronics right to repair, whether it was medical, all of those kinds of things. Um, and, you know, we're, we're working through, as anybody who's ever worked on trying to get a bill passed, uh, Notwithstanding your eighth grade civics class, it's hard work. Yes, the steps are very clear, but boy, it's hard work to get it through. And um, so,
0: so since you bring that up,, well, what are some of the um, ways right to repair has gotten pushback so far?
1: Well, one of the things is uh, that right, the pushback that right re- to pair, repair has gotten in legislative hearings has mostly been about well we built this we own the intellectual property we're not going to let you do what you want with what you own because we built it and the analogy i like to use is yes you have a copyright to a book if you're the author but you can't tell the person who bought that book that they can't write in the margins or highlight your text. In other words, yes, you can copy it and produce it and be the one who who sells it because you own the rights to the copyright or the patent, but you can't tell me what I can do with it afterwards. And I don't blame I don't blame people like John Deere who are hungry for more profit every quarter to want to try to control it. I'm just saying is is within our society, we're a competitive society, we know that competition works. Mm -hmm. So we want to get back to a competitive society where people are on a level playing field.
0: So a question that plays right into that is like with Tesla, Aren't they just selling you the hardware and disclosing that they still own the software? So if you buy it, isn't that just a free market
1: that's functioning? Well, interestingly enough, yes, they they own the rights to the software, but you have a license to use it. Okay? And so as long as you are using it, that's fine. Um. But for them to say how you can use it, how it can drive your car and the functionality of the car, that's a different story. And then we get into the whole issue of subscription versus perpetual license. And and it gets really murky in there. And again, I'm going to come back to is, I want to be able to make a choice. I don't want to say that I want to exclude any of those possibilities. I just want to include the possibility that I can make my own decision and I'm not subject to what they're doing.
0: Okay, and then what are some of the biggest wins that the movement has gotten thus far?
1: Oh my gosh, Uh, I think it's two weeks ago now, Apple, which had been fighting vigorously in all of the state legislatures and hiring lobbyists everywhere we went, Uh, they did they announced a 180 degree turnaround and in January they're going to start a self-repair program where you can order your own parts and if you want you can repair your own Apple phone with your own with um, with genuine Apple parts And, and in my mind that's the perfect that's a perfect solution now Frankly, we're going to have to see how the implementation of the program goes. My suspicion is, is we're going to have to nudge them a little bit further down the road and and kind of have them open up on that. But you've seen recently Dallas just made an announcement. Microsoft has just made a self-repair announcement. There's going to be many, many more technology companies that are going to jump on this bandwagon because, quite frankly, um, it's a competitive advantage right now to say, "Hey, wait a minute. Let's. Uh, I've got a great product, and I want my my customers to be able to get a full value from what they invested in that in that product of mine."
0: Okay. So, what is the story with uh, France' repairability score?
1: So, one of the things that France is trying to do with their repairability score is let you know at the time of purchase. Um, uh, how repairable that device is. You'll remember earlier on I talked about don't buy it if it's if you can't buy it used or if it can't be repaired. So that's kind of the idea here. And they work very closely with our friends at iFixit and they developed a set of metrics. And so you get a score from 1 to 10 on how fixable it is. Now, there are some devices uh, that have a very low score, a 1. And there are some devices that have a very high score of like eight or nine. Um, so as a consumer, if you're thinking, boy, I'm really going to want to uh, keep this for a long time. And I want to make sure that I, if like a battery goes out, batteries are typically uh, in your cell phones, batteries are typically good for a thousand cycles. So that's about three years. So. I, being as cheap as I am, wa- used my last cell phone for five years. So I had to get a battery replacement. And that was, it worked out well for me. And I, I know how to do it and all those kind of things. Um, so that was, that was good. Also too is, is I, when, when I get a new uh, cell phone, I hate the process of transferring the data, losing some of your passwords, getting the applications that didn't make it over, the new ones versus the old ones, making sure all the data. I mean, it's just like, oh, my God, it's a nightmare.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I had the same thing when I got the new uh, 13. A lot of the passwords didn't transfer over, and you had to go in and reset all that. So it's, it's a, a tedious process. Yeah. Um, so what did Australia do that's made them notable for the movement?
1: Well, two things. Number 1, when when Apple's Air 53 came up, they and their consumer agency investigated it and found that Apple had violated their consumer laws and fined them. So it was a rigorous uh, investigation that ended up in uh, resulting in a fine and also re- Apple then requiring to take away that error 53. The other thing that that Australia has done, which is absolutely brilliant, is their productivity commission is equivalent to our federal trade commission here. And they've written a massive report on the concept of right to repair in all different kinds of areas. And and they've really nailed it and, and gone into real detail as to why it's important individual owners of individual products should have the right to repair.
0: Okay. So, our next question, which goes with slide number four, uh, consumer electronics gets a, a lot of the focus for right to repair, but could you explain a bit about the agricultural right to repair?
1: Sure. And by the way, agriculture is really close to my heart. Uh, My grandfather, who who worked at a place, uh, as we used to say in the family, where they used a lot of green paint, whereas my dad worked in a place where they used a lot of red paint, meaning international harvester. Um, So, you know, very close to my heart. Both of them very successful engineers in their their careers. Um, But what's happened in the last, 15 10 15 years tractors have become or the implements uh of farm equipment have become computerized and it's almost i think you could almost say there's no food unless you have the data Mm -hmm. very interesting how that transformation has happened and you see you see it in a couple of interesting ways so one of the really interesting things that's starting to happen now is, is that used, old used farm equipment is selling for exceedingly high prices. I remember a, a friend of mine was talking this, uh, this past weekend about his, his dad who bought a tractor that's now about 25 years old. He bought it for $1,000 used. He recently got an offer for that same tractor for $25,000. Really? Yeah. The, oh. the, the market is insane right now. Hmm. Um, so, and, and the other thing is, is because John Deere has this system of what they call payload files, which is, think of it as a lock and key system. But the only people who have the key is John Deere and Moline and so you can imagine um, that in order to access that key to get that particular part working on your system it's going to be expensive
0: so so a question that probably will go, go along with what you're about to say is what does this mean for the individual farmers and how much of a challenge does this represent for them
1: Well, uh, uh, about ninety over ninety percent of farmers uh, or farm land that is farmed in the U.S. is done in a family farm environment. So, pretty small guys that probably don't have a huge uh, asset base, and they probably don't have a high margin. Farming is. Traditionally a very low margin business somewhere around 3% gross or 3% profits So anything that you're taking away from them is a big issue also, too is agriculture has very tight windows for planting harvesting and any of the other um, procedures that need to be done to the field and if you're down for one or two days or three days, or maybe even longer, that can have a serious impact on your bringing in the harvest uh, that time. And, and, and farmers are, and ranchers, they're a pretty tough bunch, but boy, don't mess with their harvester planning.
0: <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in. And don't forget to subscribe anywhere you listen.